you are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. everybody. Good to see you. Welcome to Life Community Church. No uh, nifty here last week. No nifty marker board up here so I can pretend I'm cool. Although some of you last week did remind me that no matter what I do, I'm not cool. So I'm taking notes of that, okay? Well, welcome to Life Community Church. If you're here or online, glad you're here. We say this every week. We are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and we strive to live out that identity by practicing love with everyone always, by giving more than makes sense, by chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and by anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word. That's who we are. That's who we're striving to be. Just one thing that I want to bring to your attention today. Uh, in November, on the 14th of November, we're launching a conference called the Chase Conference. We've done this for the last few years. It's a virtual conference this year and an in-person conference. So you can register for that here, or you can do it online, and we'll give you instructions online. But we're going to deal with this idea, and I'm just making up a word because that's what I do. If you haven't figured that out, I make up words. Uh, we're going to talk about neighboring and what it means to neighbor, where the intersection of us and others come. We're going to look at hospitality, and we're going to have a challenge that goes along with this conference. We'd love for you to be there. Child care is going to be provided. Join us virtually or in-house as well. We're going to be in James, as always. This is our sixth week in the book of James, so feel free to turn there in your Bibles. We'll have it on the screen, but we're in James 2, and we're going to start all the way down in verse 14 through the completion of this chapter. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace and be warm and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, hey, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We come under this word. Lord, will you help us and help me just to do a an adequate job of, of understanding faith and works. Uh, Lord, let us not demean salvation by faith alone, but Lord, help us to understand fully how that faith works in our lives. 
And so, Lord, we just pray this, that you would bring us conviction and truth and wisdom today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. James starts this with that. I love this the question. What good is it? What good is it to have a faith and no works? Can that save you? What good is it? Is there something of benefit in it? Is there a profit or a gain out of it? You might ground this question in your own reality. Like, what good is it to own a car but never drive it? Or what good is it to pay for cable but not have a TV? Or I would contend, what good is it to misidentify chicken nuggets drenched in sauce as boneless chicken wings when they have never, ever been wings, nor have they ever had bones in them? What good is it to teach our children such lies? The word good here in the Greek is ophalos. And that word ophalos is translated into of what advantage or what gain or profit is this? What does it profit or advantage someone to believe in something that isn't true? Specifically, as James says, that you can have faith that has no works. What good is it? Can that faith save you? James is repurposing words from his brother, his half-brother Jesus, who said, what does it profit a man? This is the word ophalos. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but yet lose his soul? Jesus says, what good is it for you to have all the world in its treasure but lose your soul, to lose your life, life that God gives and invites you into? The answer is, it's of no good. That's what James and Jesus would say. It's of no profit for one to have faith that doesn't become evident in our actions, in our behavior, in our deeds, in our life. That in James's estimation, would be as silly as a brother and sister in your presence who is suffering and struggling, who doesn't have adequate clothing or food or shelter. It would be like you looking at them and saying, yeah, good luck with that. I hope you find something nice for yourself. I'll tell you what, I'll pray for you. It's that silly. You can't have a faith that doesn't have action it is not faith at all. It's dead. You, you cannot merely have an intellectual acknowledgement of who God is and not have it change and soften our hearts and their desires. That is not faith. It is no good, no bueno, as we could say. So what is faith? What is faith? Well, our Bible would say this in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so the author of Hebrew sees it like this, that faith is that which enables us to treat the unseen as real as the things that are seen. It is the persuasion of our soul, the conviction of our soul, that the promises and the words of Jesus are true and that they actually will happen. And it's the conviction in our life to live in the moments of our life that don't make sense, that are not enjoyable, that we can trust the one who's above it, whom loves us, that he can use it, that he can redeem it in this life or the next. It's a trust in that. It's, it's not an intellectual knowledge. It's a willingness to trust in, rely on, cling to the object of our faith, the one we call Messiah, Savior, King, Jesus. And so when we think about those of faith in the early centuries or the early church. Let's even go back to the days of Jesus. 
when Jesus walked on earth. What would denote somebody as being faithful? Well, there was an easy way to figure out if somebody had faith in Jesus because they would follow him. That's what Jesus instructed to all of his disciples when they came to him, that they would leave all that they had behind and that they would follow him. The faithful in Jesus' times were always followers of Jesus. They were faithful and devoted to following Jesus. That was what denoted them. There was an interaction that Jesus had with a rich young ruler in which this young man said that essentially he, he had done all of the law of God well since the days of his birth, and he wanted to know what else he needed to do. And Jesus, with love in his heart, looks at this young man and says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. And follow me. That was something that this young man wasn't willing to do. Faithful believers were always dedicated followers of Jesus. They're one and the same. Those of faith follow Jesus. Listen to the words of Christ himself in Matthew 16. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What Jesus is saying to those of that day is that if you want to pursue me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And what he is saying is that if you want to come after me, it will be about denying your agendas, setting aside your will and your desires, removing your obedience to yourself and what you want, and becoming obedient to the way and the will of God, which is to live an other-centric life as the one that we see in Jesus. Jesus was the only one to do that perfectly well. And we may not do that always well, but we pursue and we try. We pursue the life of Christ. Jesus carried the cross. He carried it down death row. So must those who come to faith in Jesus. There's always been a cost to following Jesus. There's always a cost that is incurred in belief in Christ. And that was true of the disciples of that day and of the apostle James who left all that they had to follow Jesus. And not only that, they were martyred. All of them killed except for John the Apostle. Faith is about following in the footsteps of Jesus. And our following is about becoming more like Jesus and repenting and confessing where we're not and believing that God's grace, God's grace is big enough to hold us until we are. Jesus says this in John 14. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Jesus, in very future tensed words, is saying that those who come after me will do the kinds of works that I did. Not only that, they will do greater works than these. Now, there are some who will read this passage and they'll say, well, this is about doing the kind of works that Jesus did in the miraculous. That there are people, people come after him that will do greater works as far as healing people and raising people from the dead, having more miraculous signs. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this. That's not what he's meaning. Why do we know that? Well, if we, in all the millions of believers who have lived and died on this earth, has there ever been one to do greater works than our author and our perfecter of our faith in Jesus Christ who walked on water and calmed storms by his word and multiplied food for thousands and raised people from the dead? There hasn't. There has never been now or have ever been even one person. And if you could be 
prove that there was one person that was better than Jesus? Why aren't there thousands of people who fulfilled this sort of idea that we would do greater miraculous works than Jesus? The reason that we don't see it and haven't seen it is because that's not what Jesus is saying. Because the greater work that Jesus is talking about comes from the victory that he secures for us on the cross. The greater works are not greater works in sensationalism. They're greater works in multitude and magnitude. Because if Christ is with his Father, seated at his right hand, he is ruling and interceding, praying for us on our behalf. And it means that the Holy Spirit of God is present amongst his people on earth. And where Jesus was physically bound in presence to one location, the Holy Spirit of God works globally across all believers, renewing and drawing and partnering with the faithful that they would live a life that doesn't seek sufficiency in the world and his treasure, but act and live as one who has found sufficiency in Christ. That we live believing and trusting that in Jesus I have all that I need, that I don't need the treasures of the world, that frees me up to practice an other-centric life because I have all that I need in Christ. Not that we'll ever have this all figured out in one moment, but rather in our humility we progress seeing what we have in Jesus, knowing what we have in Jesus, following and obeying to the best of my ability to be more like him, sustained by his grace. And James makes this statement uh, or a question that seemingly has been brought up along the way or he anticipates will be brought up. He brings up this issue of one saying, well, you have works and I have faith. Good for you. As if works and faith were two separate gifts that as long as you have one, you're good. I have faith, you have works, good. And this is where it gets sort of tricky. This is sort of where it gets tricky in understanding faith and works because it can feel, if you know the Apostle Paul, it can feel like James here is contradicting the teachings of the the Apostle Paul who would have been teaching in this very time frame. Paul famously writes to the churches, the Romans and the Ephesians and the Galatians, and he says that you are justified by faith and faith alone. You are justified by faith. But here we have another apostle, James, somebody who lived with Jesus, knew Jesus, and is now teaching about Jesus after his death. And he is saying, no, not just faith, but works. And so what's happening? What's the deal? Well, James is not contradicting Paul, nor is Paul contradicting James. James is trying to compel the same thing that Paul has compelled, that for grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a product of works so that no one can boast. For we are, as Paul says, the workmanship of God created for good works in which God has created in advance for us to walk in. Both James and Paul are saying this, that real faith will be demonstrated by your works. He's not disavowing grace through faith. What he is saying is that if you have faith, It will be evident in your workings, in your behaviors, in your life. Faith can never be ineffectual, meaning it can never not have, if I can use that double negative, it can never not have, or maybe I shouldn't say that because that implies the positive, right? You can never, it never, it will always, okay, we'll just move on past it. (laughs) We'll just go. Your works, your works will testify to your faith. And then James brings this, uh, it's a powerful example, this powerful illustration as he looks at the demons. And he says, they believe that the fallacy of faith without works is demonstrated in the demons, which have a dead faith. The demons 
in some sense acknowledge that God exists. But that kind of faith gets the demons nothing because it isn't real faith, and that is proved because there isn't Christ-centered works alongside of it. And so what James is saying is that works will always follow faith, but faith that doesn't glorify Christ, that doesn't glorify Him in our actions and our behavior is not faith. It's just acknowledgement. It's just, I kind of like that. And so what are the works that that James is adamant that we would be a part of? What are the works that James is, is saying that we should be doing? Well, well, to speak to that, I want to I talk about a different issue. When we come to faith, we have to understand that we aren't just saved from something, but we are also transferred into something else. And Paul writes this truth in Colossians in chapter 1. He says, He, this is Jesus, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the reason that I bring this into our conversation is because of what I think has happened to much of the American church, whom have unfortunately miscalculated what works that flow from faith are. The works that we parade as what it means to be a Christian are not the works or the greater works that Jesus has spoke about, and they're not the works that James is talking about here. When we mention today what it means to look like a Christian, what I must do, it almost always goes into, well, I need to cuss less. I need to read my Bible a little bit more. I need to pray. I need to stop yelling at my kids. I need to drink less. I need to vote this way. I have to say these things because that's what Christians do. That's what they do. And so our works become a list of do's and don'ts because that's what Christians do. That's what we do. And I'm not saying that some of those things shouldn't happen. I'm just saying that's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It could be said today that we, cons- that we consider works that flow from faith to mere do's that here, I need to do this, and I need to look like that. I need to spend my money in the pro shop. Our works simply become the things we need to do to belong that make us feel worthy. But for many of us, we can look the part of being a Christian merely because we have personal values and morals and we were raised a certain way and the social pressure of our culture without ever really trusting or having faith in Jesus himself. And so what I think is always important to remember, friends, is that through Christ, you weren't just saved from something, you were transferred. You were transferred into his kingdom through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the only thing that makes you worthy. You are out, way out, and you're in. Not because of you, not because of me, but because of Christ. We were lost, and now we're found. We were orphaned, but now through Christ we are adopted children of God, the most high God. We live in a new kingdom. Faith isn't the acknowledgement that those things sound good. It's the conviction that they're true. That they're true. And they're true of me. It's to live a life with that conviction 
Christianity isn't a country club. It's a hospital for the sick and the broken. We have wounds and scarred up knees and elbows, and we don't always get this thing right, but we have a physician who did and does, and he has given us a new prescription on life, a new cure for life. But for some reason, we would rather die than to follow him. For some reason, we'd rather say that I have faith, but never have it be the evidence in our life. There's a story of a small town where all the residents are ducks. Stay with me, okay? And every Sunday, the ducks would come out of the houses and waddle down Main Street, and they would waddle into the sanctuary, and they would sit in their proper pews, and the duck choir would come out, sing songs, and the duck minister would come up and open the duck Bible, and he would say, ducks! God gave you wings. You can fly. You can mount up like eagles and soar. You have wings. God gave you wings. You can fly. There's no walls that can contain you. There's no fences that can keep you in. God gave you wings. So go fly like the birds. And they all shouted, Amen. And they closed in prayer. And they waddled home. Could it be said that we tend to live more like ducks? That we've settled in our understanding of what Christianity is and we've gutted the power of it to change our lives in an effort to look more like others and to be around people who think similar to us or to calm our fear of what death is. Faith in Christ and his gospel is always effectual on our behavior because it's a radical reorientation of what's good and right. Jesus radically redefined what is redemptive, what is powerful, what it means to love one another. Jesus is God, and God, through Jesus, drew near to us. It shows us that what it truly means to live. How is it possible to have a faith where the evidence of that faith is unknown in our lives? It's impossible. Faith will always be demonstrated by work. It is the evidence that we believe. And so if I want to control my anger, if I want to control my tongue, if I want to be a better spouse, a better friend, a better husband, if I want to be more like Jesus, if I want to be more like... It's about changing the way that we see people, we see the world, we see ourselves, and we see God. Because God's kingdom has redefined all of those things. All of those things. And we are better served, listen, better served orienting ourselves to living in that kingdom than figuring out how to fit in this one. Because our figuring out how to do this by effort isn't working, and it's not helping. And so there is a sense, as N.T. Wright describes it, he's an author, that we Christians today, we're living in the second to last act before the final judgment, before the kingdom of God descends on the earth when Jesus comes back. We're living in the penultimate act before that happens. And we, in this season, are ad-libbing in some ways what it would have been like to live in God's past kingdom that we read about in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, and what it will be like to live in his future kingdom when it comes. In this 
season of in-between, we strive to be as consistent and devoted in this inconsistent and chaotic word to who Jesus was and is and what his word says. We live in the kingdom of God as if it were here today, not because we have to, because we get to. We get to live there. And so that means that in the realities of our life where we encounter the world and others, whether they know it or not, they should experience and see the person and the work of Jesus in our life, that we're loving the poor, that we're loving our enemies, that we're considering others more significant than ourselves, that we're being servants. Those are the greater works. Why? Because those are the values of the kingdom of God. Those are the values of the kingdom of God that I live in because of the multitude of the work that Jesus has done for me, because he's dealt with my sin, because he has purchased me by his blood, he has redeemed me, and he has created peace between me and God. I belong in his kingdom today because of Jesus, and I live by his values and his ways. And so James then speaks about Abraham, the patriarch, and Rahab, the, the prophet or the prostitute, and he uses them as a tool for us to understand that faith it must act. Faith must act. It is not good to leave it into the intellect. The lesson from Abraham is clear. If we believe in God, we will do what he says. And the lesson from Rahab is clear. If we believe in God, we will help his people even if it costs us something. And so James says, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So look, I think a fair question for us to ask ourselves this week is if I were living in the time of Jesus, would I have heeded his words? Would I have heeded his words of, of my beloved Savior, knowing what I know about him, and would I have followed him? Would I have followed him? Would I have left it all, and would I have followed him? Would my faith have acted? And if our answer is no, or we don't know, then I have to ask myself a serious question. I have to ask myself a serious question. Like, like if I wouldn't follow Jesus in the flesh, what makes me think that I'm following him now? And that doesn't have to be a condemning question. That could be a powerful question that reorients our life, that actually drives us deeper into the grace of God. And if our answer is yes, yes, I would follow Jesus in that day, then our question is, well, would people know that today? Would would people know that as imperfectly as it may come at time, would would people know that you're following that way today? Am I living a other-centric life through Christ that he embodied? Or am I still just paying dues to the country club? We've been transferred into the kingdom of God. And we get to live there as if it's here today. Those are our works. Those are the greater works. And those are what James are talking about. Works that flow from faith. Would you pray with me? Father, there's a humbling reality of our propensity to make this into a list of do's and don'ts. 
And Lord, we just get settled in the fact that, Lord, you rescued us from stuff. But Lord, we never really believe that you transferred us to live in a new kingdom by new values and new ways. So Lord, help us to have the conviction to believe that's true. That we believe that's true for ourselves, that we're a child of the Most High God, that you have redeemed us. And let our life be filled of works that show who you are and how you lived. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this through your beautiful name. Amen.